Welcome to episode 149 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm missing you because I'm doing Charleston <laughs> for the first time without you. And I'm so sad. Not sad. Different. That's not the right That's not the right word for it. But um, the tweets and the photos and the matches just got done watching uh, the Kerber-Aruabarena match, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, yeah, getting a little, getting a little nostalgic, and, and definitely missing it. Very bummed to be missing the now Volvo Cars. No, Volvo Car. Volvo Car. Right? It is the yeah. the, the clunkiest tournament name. And Volvo it's, Car Open. Volvo Car um, Open. Yep. Yeah. So I'm definitely bummed to be missing it, and missing all of our good familiar faces that are there. Missing Lynn and Danny, and obviously Nick and Diane and Dan and everybody that's there. So, uh, yeah, but. It's about time for me to go home. Know that you are missing. <laughs> Sorry, Charleston. <laughs> so you are you are doing your I guess office rounds at and you're in St. Pete right now at WTA headquarters I am. land where we're recording okay. this. Um, coming off of Miami, which sort of wraps up the first quarter of the year pretty cleanly in terms of the hard court opening and I guess some clay in South America too, but mostly hard courts um, to start the year and puts a nice sort of chapter ending bookmark fence post whatever analogy you want to use on this part of the calendar. Uh, so we thought it'd be a good time to sort of go back over this first quarter. I guess we, we'll start with Miami just because to wrap up the more clean stuff. We were saying pre-show, Courtney, that like exactly the same things that happened in Indian Wells happened in Miami. So there's continuity, but not exactly a lot of fresh material here. Not results wise. That's yeah. definitely true. Um, you know, at the end of the day, when all the dust and confetti had settled, uh, pretty much the same champions, except for for Lucy Safrova sw- swapping in for Coco Vandeweghe on the women's double side. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it kind of was, you know, last episode, I was very much about forehands and backhands and just wanting to do forehands and backhands, uh, which is pretty much what we got in Miami, which was nice. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, it's, it's the same champions. It's the players who were dominant that we suspected to be dominant, which are Novak Djokovic and Victoria Azarenka. A few kind of, you know, minor B stories um, that I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on a little bit. Serena Williams crashing out of the quarterfinals. Nick Kyrgios making the semifinals, which was pretty massive. Kane Shikori getting back into a Masters final. All those sorts of things are pretty nifty. But at the end of the day, it's about trophies. And it was the same trophy holders. Yeah, let's go to the women first, I guess, because Azarenka... It's not number one, but I think she is number one of the race, I guess, now with this win. This is her third title of the year um, and really has put herself pretty. I obviously couldn't ask for a lot more than winning the double out of this part of the year, but even more so just looks so, so solid through all these matches. And I think she's playing. It, it's a familiar sort of scene for me at this point, because we when we, you know, first <laughs> first season of NCR time 2012, Victoria Azarenka went on this run through this early part of the year again. And it was definitely I was definitely getting flashbacks to it, to that sort of feeling of when her game is on with her tactics and her baseline hugging and her strength, she is somebody who doesn't have any weaknesses and it's hard to see how she loses in this sort of way. And I'm starting to get a sense of that again, especially in that Kuznetsova match, even or in the semis against Kerber, which was great. Not as great, not as, you know, maybe close as their Australian open match, but still pretty high quality. Vika looks back and very ready to win a lot of stuff this year. And, I think we said power rankings number one with some hesitation in a past episode, but I would say no hesitation right now after this Miami title. 
Yeah, no, definitely no hesitation. Right now, doesn't drop a set winning Miami, uh, which was pretty impressive, especially given, you know, some of the, the, the quality opposition that she had in Miami and, and arguably, aside from Serena in the final in India Wells, much tougher opposition, I thought, in uh, Miami than in India Wells. Agreed. In India Wells, she dropped two sets, I think one to Stozer and one to Pliskova. So, you know, just she you're right. I mean, she's such a confidence player. This is her time of the season. 20 titles. She's now won 13 of those titles have come in the first quarter of the season. So that gives you some. That's a good stat. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> it pays to actually have to write, you know, seven things we learned from Miami. Let's do some research in the numbers. Um, but yeah, so it's it's pretty impressive in that way. And and and, and you know, piggybacking piggybacking off of that. And what you said, yeah, this is this is what we expect from peak Azarenka, which would mean to me three titles in the first quarter, you know, beating Serena, beating Kerber twice in three meetings. Uh, it would seem to me to signal that this is this is we're seeing, quote unquote, a peak Vika. Um, and but, you know, obviously, and we'll talk about this later as we maybe look forward a little bit. I mean what does it mean for clay and grass? You know, I mean, we know what her, how good Vika is on hard courts. Um, Her results on clay and grass have, have not really been great. And so, you know, that little swing in the middle of the, of those, you know, three to four months is, uh, is really a big question mark. And my big question is whether or not she can continue this on clay, but um, that's a very fair question. Cause in 2012, she didn't, she didn't. Well, I mean, really no season did she, I mean, she's won one title, 20 titles, one title on clay. It was in Marbella. Uh, so a tiny, a, a pretty small title yeah. in that way. Um, you know, she's put herself in position on clay to win. I mean, she's made Madrid final twice, made Stuttgart final t- once, and um, Rome once. So she's put herself there, but um, you know, hasn't really been able to get further than that. And then grass, I think, is is pretty much statistically her worst surface. Uh, and then we'll have obviously the hard courts again. So, you know, are we going to see like this big surge and then kind of a not a dip, but other players being better on the surface than Vika. Um, you know, as Clay, as Clay, uh, as we turn to Clay, maybe I just don't know. But yeah, this is the start of the start to the season that I expected from her last year. Exactly, I was going to say the same thing. It now it feels like she was very ready for this last year and it just didn't happen for her. Yeah, like, whether exactly. that was whether that was because that was when she got a lot more attention coming into last year. Um, coming to that Brisbane, I remember starting back. There's just a lot of hype on, a lot of expectation on her in 2015, and maybe she was a little bit more under the radar this year, or we had been, you know, we'd already done that narrative, and I guess it was more about Serena and how she'd bounce back the start of this year. But Azarenka, exactly, is picking up where we thought she'd leave off a year ago. And I'm not, you know, blaming her for being slow to come back. I, I was, I will say, I was surprised that her ranking wasn't higher at the end of last year. Uh, I think everybody was with how relevant a player she felt like she was. Yeah, um, that's true. But now, now top five, really flying up the rankings really fast in a way that's pretty satisfying because she definitely feels like a top five player at least right now. So to have her get that mantle back um, and get some good seedings back and so she'll be in draws uh, where she won't have to run into tough, tough players early um, is pretty, pretty good. I think that's sort of the tour writing itself. Although, I mean, obviously the, the matches are good from a spectator point of view that we talked about it a little bit last time, but the azarenka Muguru's match was really, really good. For both of them in Miami, um, obviously Azarenka Kerber was a semi. That was also great. So all told, Azarenka is doing things that are encouraging. I guess briefly on just on Miami on Kuznetsova, we haven't really talked about much this year, but she made the final. Um, she beat Serena. 
She won Sydney earlier this year. I feel like with Spetta, though, I never know when to pay attention and when not to. I feel more <laughs> inclined to now, but you just never know what you're going to get with her on any level. So I guess is it fair to say that – I mean, I guess I'm going to say my radar is more on Sveta than usual, but I'm certainly not getting my hopes up. Is that where you, roughly where you're at as well, or is that, or do you, are you more optimistic about Sveta after seeing her reach this big final? No, that's pretty much where I'm at uh, with Sveta. I mean, the first three months of the season is pretty much her entire career in a nutshell, right? I mean, starts the season – wins Sydney, you know, good tournament, beats Halep, who was number two at the time, and then wins two matches going until she gets to Miami. Yeah. That makes no sense. <laughs> uh, but it's also Sveta. So she gets to Miami, and, and I think I've said this before multiple times in this podcast, like she's a player that feels like she needs to play herself into form. She does that, and then she gets Serena in the round of 16, plays, I thought, a good match, not a great match. I thought that, you know, Serena definitely um, imploded a little bit in that match. Um, so it wasn't like it was a super impressive situation for Sveta and whatever. I think that the focus was a little bit more on Serena, but continued to play well, you know, got wins, good wins over Baczynski. Um Good to see Baczynski back, by the way, in a semi. Yes, yes. I, I'm, I'm actually pretty high up on Baczynski going into clay. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, we don't know. I mean, Sveta could go winless for the rest of the year. Not for lack of trying. <laughs> you know, she just doesn't – she doesn't know. Her coach doesn't know. You know, she has no middle ground. She's either very good or she's very bad. And and she knows that. Everyone knows that. I mean, I think anybody who got asked a question about Kuznetsova uh, last week, you know, had incredible respect and praise for Sveta. While at the same time, they couldn't stop themselves from saying, I mean, I know her career has had a lot of ups and downs, right. <laughs> you know, like the inconsistency is just as huge a part of the narrative with respect to her as her immense talent. But so, I mean, my takeaway from Sveta in Miami is just that it was a reminder that she is a world beater. She can be. Yeah. On any given day. She can be. You just don't know which Sveta you get on any given day. And, and that's going to be the situation. So she's had a great you know, uh, se- not series, because that would imply consistency. But um, a, a, the, her last 12 months, I mean, she would have been top 10 if she beat Vika. That's crazy. <laughs> like, think about that. That's crazy. But if you look at her last 12 months, Miami, or sorry, Madrid final, wins Moscow, Sydney champion, and then she would have had, you know, points from Miami. So, uh, you know, those are great results and, and uh, you know, no shade on her. But, but when Sveta herself is admitting that she didn't actually feel all that great in Miami. And she said that she felt far fitter in um, in Sydney than mm. she did in Miami. And she said that, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that she probably should have skipped the Middle East and just had a training block because she, she's when she described her results this year, she's like, yeah, I won Sydney. And then I, okay, Australian Open, I was bad. Then Fed Cup, I messed it up. <laughs> she went 0-2 in, in Fed Cup in Russia, and Russia lost to what, the Netherlands? Yep, the Netherlands. Right? Yeah. The Burton's Hogan Camp Express. Yeah, exactly. So she she says that she should have taken February off to just train, and she didn't. She played the tournaments. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what her decision is in um, on clay. Because I asked her, I was like, you know, you, I mean, basically implying like you, you could choose not to play Stuttgart. I mean, you could pull out or, or whatever um, and prepare yourself for Madrid. And she's like, yeah, I mean, I could and I might. But at the same time, I need matches. I prefer to play tournaments. Matches give me confidence. So 
it's a hard hard balance to strike. She hasn't, but she hasn't played so much that I would think she would need time off. I mean, she she lost early, like you said, she didn't lost much. But she's not she's not as fit as she was at the start of the season. Okay. I mean, watching her, I mean, just looking at her, you can tell. Like you, you know, a, a couple of weeks of like like hitting the gym and 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 just working on fitness and movement on clay would do her well. And you know, with with time kind of running out, not running out. I mean, she's thirty, but um, and she could play. I mean, Sveta could play for like four or five more years easily. But um, you know, with the French Open there, clay being the surface that it is, and, and she likes playing on it. I don't know. Maybe maybe you take that gamble this year, especially with the Olympics looming and the packed schedule in the summer, and and you bank on a training block now. Just throwing it out there. Just just spitballing. <laughs> So I guess to zoom out to make this women's wrap a bit bigger picture for the first quarter of the year, I guess, obviously, Azarank is doing well. Kuznetsov is doing well. Kerber obviously won a slam, so she's, by definition, doing pretty well and made Miami semi, so she backed that up. I think she got back on track fully in Miami. And even in that first match we just saw in Charleston, Courtney, against Rua Barena, she looked good. I think that was more about Rua Barena, um, which, who was played quietly very well this past uh this, at least at this beginning of this clay season. How much of this is about these women stepping up and how much is about Serena stepping back? Because this was supposed to be, I mean, this decade is supposed to be the Serena Williams show, you know, end to end. And so anytime that she's not sweeping things, and she hasn't won a title yet, she hasn't won a title since Cincinnati. Um, the question is, is it Serena or is it the field who's making the difference? And I don't I, I would mostly say that it's, as as regard to Azarenka stepping up, I think it's about Azarenka stepping up to where we thought she could be and where she should be. Um, but Serena's definitely not stepping forward herself either. Has I don't I haven't been impressed by Serena at least in the in, in the Sunshine Double as it's called the Indian Wells Miami Swing. But have you? Do you think that's a, a fair way to take it? That it's more I think it's more Azarenka than Serena, but Serena's definitely doing her part a little bit to give the field as it were, more space than they have had in the past. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that, you know, we've seen, you know, a 5 to 10% dip from Serena. And I don't mean like 5 to 10% from her peak, because we obviously know 5 to 10% off of Serena's peak is still probably good enough to, Win you know, two and two business. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I, so I don't mean it from that perspective. But when you when you look at kind of, because it's interesting, after Indian Wells, and I may have said this on the podcast, I by my eye... Serena was playing better this year than she was last year in the first Definitely in Australia, I thought that. In Australian Open. Yeah, I, I, thought it, I thought that way in Indian Wells, is, uh, Indian Wells also, though. I don't, I don't think that she dropped a set to get to the final and then, and then obviously lost to, to Vika there. Um, but, uh, and Vika played a very good match. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't, she wasn't completely off. She was off in Miami. Um, and I think that, that we talked about that a little bit more in the last episode. Um, and just didn't look all that great, was in a bit of a mood, and um, just wasn't engaged in the way that, that you would expect Serena to be, especially Miami, where she's an eight-time champion. Um, so, you know, there's going to be, obviously Serena's going to play some of, play her part. It's an interesting thing, though, because I did pose this question to Martina Navratilova. Mm, name drop. In a convers- yeah, in a conversation that, that uh, I put on the, the Insider podcast, but, um, and, and she said, yeah, it's some of it, Serena, but that she thought, in her opinion, that it was a little bit more that the field now believes that whether and and so we can all we can kind of parse that down. Some people I remember seeing articles in Australia, which I thought was way premature of, oh, 
Roberta Vinci beats Serena. So everybody believes the locker, you know, like a Vavrinka situation. I'm sorry, but I don't, I didn't believe that in January at all. I just didn't think that there were enough data points uh, for the players to think that. That made no sense. But now, having seen her lose to Vika and Kerber um, going into Miami, it was like, okay, maybe something's a little bit off. And then against Sveta, because the weird thing about the Serena situation, losses to a peak Kerber at the Australian Open, a mm-hmm. very good, if not peak, Azarenka in Indian Wells, and then a Kuznetsova, those aren't isolated bad losses. Like, those are qual- that's quality opposition across the board. But the, her performance in Miami was 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 head scratching. That's for sure. But yeah, I mean, that's what Navratilova said. I, I mean, I don't disagree with her at all. Um, I just, I'm just not entirely sure. But whether or not I give more weight to the Serena dip or the field leveling up, mm-hmm. um, because I do think that there are soft pockets in the field. I mean, this isn't. It's not like the field is like at its peak right now either. Right? I mean, at least in the first quarter. So Halep was off until she finally got to North America, back-to-back quarterfinals. Pretty good. Uh, Muguruza finding her form, but not playing at the level that we might expect of her. Kvitova pretty much invisible yeah. through the first quarter. Um, so, you know, there's the, the players that you would expect. Benchich had a bit of a rocky one uh, after making top 10, so she, she wasn't really much of a factor in North America. But yeah, there's just a lot of players who are who are still sputtering a little bit. So it's I, I don't know if I buy into the argument that the field is playing better. I think a couple of players are playing better. <laughs> and that's probably right. And I think we, we can get a little bit in comparison to the men's game. But I think you're right in that overall, Azarenka is taking advantage and Kerber are taking advantage of openings that are there. I mean, Sharapova is obviously not playing with injury and her other things going on. Uh, like you said, Muguruza and Halep have had very up and down years, which we talked about last time on the show. Safarova has been hasn't won a match this year, you know, sideline with injury, and she was one of the Singapore eight last year. Um, there's there's space in the WTA right now, as they're always as the results this first quarter have shown. I mean, let's not forget if we're doing a holistic rap here that we went to the Middle East and walked away with trophies for Iranian and Carlos Suarez Navarro. I mean, you know, there are things on the there are people being able to reach into the table and grab huge chunks of um, I don't know what, what what's in the middle of the table like a like a big carved up game bird of some sort. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's it? okay. All right, fine, I'll, I'll pick what what's in the middle of the table. What's in? I, I finished this analogy. Is there an analogy here? I don't know. Dinner people rolls? are able pe- people are able to find um to pounce on this spilling open pinata with less opposition than usual, and so people it's spreading out a bit more than it would otherwise. And people are winning. And the, and the best of those outsiders, because Azarenka was by ranking an outsider at the beginning of this year, are doing their best and taking advantage of this. And, and yeah, the, the conditions are there. I think Serena definitely is part of that. Serena is part of this general um, ebb of the top 10 that's making these openings happen. But she's not the only part of the story. I think you're right there. Yeah, definitely so. not the only part of the story. Just that she's... She's providing some space for the for the players who are playing incredibly well right now to to make a bit of a move. But yeah, I I, I just don't buy the locker room Stan Wawrinka narrative of everybody now believes they can win or like Flavia won now everybody believes they can win a. Sl- I don't know. I, I'm not. I, 
I just, I just, I just don't have data points on that. I, I, that's not something that players who like players will buy into that question if you ask them that as a leading question. Of uh, I've I've heard it and and they've done it to me. I just don't buy it. And the players yeah. who I personally respect in terms of their analytical ability and the the way that they talk about their careers and the tours, they're not really buying that. Um, that something changed. Like, oh, Flavia won. We all can win. Uh, for the most part, everybody believes the same now as they believed, you know, eight months ago. I think it's less about Flavia and more about Vinci, though. I think that Maybe. I think that I, I am willing to believe that people think that Serena's aura is denting, and we've certainly seen this happen with Nadal. That people go into, and obviously Serena's struggles are nowhere near what Nadal's struggles have been, you know, at times in these last few years. Um, but we've seen Nadal take uh, some questionable losses and just find himself in more battles than he ever did before because people aren't going into matches scared like they used to. And maybe that's becoming the case with Serena slowly but surely. I mean, when yeah. you see and even and even if you want to take it there, like when she loses to Vinci and then takes three months off for general healing, maybe people sense weakness in that in some way. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, people, that... people, coaches, especially coaches who are talking to sure. players will pounce on whatever they can to try to put that in their heads. If you know. Who'd you play in Australia first round? Georgie. <laughs> God knows what's going on in the Georgie, the Georgie coaching scenarios at any point. <laughs> Does Georgie get coached? I guess. Uh, who knows? Um, but yeah, someone can say, look, she's, look at her. She's been in hiding for three months since she played at Hopman Cup and she was awful. Uh, you know, you can make a more convincing argument as a, as a coach or a more convincing pep talk against Serena than I think was doable uh, certainly six months ago, eight months ago, things like that. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I agree with that. I just, I, I think that there's a distinction to be made too in terms of what I'm saying. I, I think that going into Miami, I don't think that, or even in January in, in Melbourne or going into Indian Wells, I don't think that there was enough uh, to, to grab onto to say, oh, Serena's slumping. I, I think that there, you know, now after three tournaments, and particularly a round of 16 loss in Miami to Kuznetsova, um, you know, the only time she's ever lost uh, before the quarterfinals before this year was like 2002, Capriotti? It was, was Capriotti. It, was Nyaki? No, that was quarters. That was a quarter? Okay. Yeah, no, round of 16. I think it was, I know it was Capriotti, but I, the year I think is 02, um, which is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is a tournament she typically plays well at, you know, she, she generally has success against Feta. Um, you know, that, that is a result that it's a little bit more of a red flag than I think making a final and losing to a Kerber who played out of her mind and, uh, and to Vika, especially considering the emotional components of the Kerber final and the Azarenka final. There, there, there right. wasn't the same sort of thing, you know, this should have been a routine match for Serena against Feta. Or it should have been a match that Sveta could have won by playing her absolute best. Right. Oh, absolutely. And that just wasn't – it was just – it was a very weird exit on on every level. So now going into clay, especially because it's Serena's worst surface, I could definitely understand, you know, maybe the locker room feeling a little bit better about the situation or the field, feeling like the gap is smaller. I'm just saying like two weeks ago or four weeks ago or two months ago, I don't think that the field would have felt that necessarily. Or, and if they you, did, it was unjustified, is basically what I'm saying. You mentioned Baczynski. <laughs> right. You mentioned Baczynski, and I'm sure you're going to mention another player whose name rhymes with 
Bassett Kina, but <laughs> who who else do you think is someone to watch? I guess going into clay here because you mentioned it's it's Serena's worst surface. It's one of Vika's worst surfaces. Whether you want to say clay or grass is worth, you can argue it's, either way. It's um, not great for Kerber either. Not great for Kerber. Despite either, her correct. success last year, it's not. She admits it. She's like she doesn't right. like it. She's trying not. She's trying to, but yeah. she doesn't like it. Um, the one player who has played their best on clay lately is Sharapova. She's not going to be here as far as we know the whole clay season. Uh, Halep has been very up and down. So is there is there a, a leader going into clay? Are there people I, – I guess, I guess I'm just asking you to, you know, in the looking forward part to flag some names. You said Baczynski, which I think is totally correct. Um, I would probably add Carl to that discussion. Who had a not bad start to the year. Yeah, got a little um, injured in Indy Wells. Bad luck, turned her ankle against Conta and then – First round exit in Miami, but but right, really good Australia for sure. So and and she's playing, you know, and obviously uh, Middle East swing as well played well. Um, the names I would flag, I I'm really big going into clay on um, on Halep and, and Muguruza. I I think okay. that I think that the end result of what happened for them in the first three months of the season were not great, obviously. But if you watch the matches, I think I mean I, Halep is playing so much better now. Than she was in February and January. Sure. Um, back-to-back quarterfinals, Indian Wells, Miami. Um, and, you know, is 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 just is right there, just needs a little bit more tweaking, a little bit more work, a little bit more confidence. Muguruza, to me, just needs one big win. And she almost got it in Miami against right. Azarenka. Um, I say almost. I mean, it was a straight set match, but it was two tie breaks. Six to six, And yeah. it was great. And, um, and yeah, so, so I think that she's hitting the ball well. I think she's making the right decisions. She's just missing a little bit too much, too, a little bit too much. And, and obviously at, at this point, Azarenka's 22 and one, there's no shame in losing to Vika on hard court right now. Um, so those, I mean, those two names are definitely ones I'd flag, but Chinsky and Benchich. I think Benchich needs a bit of a reset, but, but she's good on clay. She's all right. Yeah. She's not bad. I think, I think Benchich is someone who can gain a lot of confidence from Charleston if it goes right for her. Yeah. I think she could just use a run and this is a tournament. Charleston, and not to go too much into draw to section here because a lot of, can change all the seats to play tomorrow or all the remaining seats, but Kerber and Kerber went to a third set tiebreak, so nothing is guaranteed. Um, but a bunch of players, I would put uh, put Pekovic in that conversation. Pekovic happens to have a great Charleston that could be big for her. Irani is here. I think Irani could be one to, who could definitely scoop up some stuff that's uh, in some draws where people don't like the clay. Irani loves the clay. It's always a good time of year for her. Um, Sloan, I'm curious. Sloan always says she likes clay. It never backs up statistically that she's that great at clay, but she thinks she likes it, so that's something. Um, she was talking. She was talking at all access hour about like, yeah, I love Charleston. It's always great here. I've only won one match in my career here, but I really like it. It's like, okay. Hey, it, uh, so much of clay is is mental. Yeah, you just gotta you gotta embrace it. You know, right? That's the uh, that's the whole Madison Keys situation. I'm convinced that Madison Keys can win things on clay. I'm convinced that it, it's very possibly her best surface um, uh, under the same rationales as why it, it works for Isner. Yeah, she, she's just got to learn to love it. So I guess to wrap up the women's side of this here, is there, I, I haven't looked at the odds. I'm guessing it's Serena, but is there a French Open favorite right now? Or is it just way like impossible to even say that with any sort of straight face? I don't think that I would... I definitely would not predict anyone as or, or back. Sorry, I predict no one will win the French Open. Um, <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't back a horse as of right now. I think there's there's just too many questions, and uh, you know because we we've seen this before. I mean, you know when Serena went into back in 2012. So this is the first time that Serena's gone into clay without a title under her belt since 2012. 
2012 is also the year that she went in and basically like what, like won Charleston, Fed Cup, either Madrid or Rome, or Madrid and then a couple of matches in Rome. So she came in undefeated and then she lost to Rosano right. at the French Open. But that was like a big rebound for her, like on mm-hmm. clay. And then after that, we obviously know what happened in 2012. Wimbledon champion, uh, Olympic gold medalist, US Open champion, and year-end champion. Um, so you know, everything can change so quickly with Serena and, and she remains the litmus test on, on the women's side and she remains the the woman that, you know, dictates the overall tenor and, and storylines of the tour. So, yeah. you, you know, to uh, to choose anyone but her for the French at this point without seeing anybody's form on clay just seems really, really premature. I just looked at the odds. Serena is indeed the favorite. Did you the see French the thing Open. on ESPN that Sharapova's 10 to 1 to win the French? Yes, I saw so at these odds. So basically, it goes like Serena, basically, they're, they're still not totally agreeing, but roughly the averages on odds checker. Serena's roughly 3 to 1 to win the French, sometimes a little bit lower. Azarenka is second at roughly 5 to 1. So not that far behind. Halep is roughly 7 to 1 in third. Only a couple people are offering Sharapova. <laughs> only, only not to do plugs, but. Ladbrokes and Stan. I never heard of Stan James, but they'll give you eight to one on Sharapova, which you should not take. Um, and then, yeah, then Muguruza and Kvitova, Kerber, Bencic, Suarez, Navarro, uh, Ravanska, Ivanovic, Bachinski. I would bet on Hold Bichinsky. on. They put Kerber Bichinsky. behind Kvitova? Yes, they put Kerber behind Kvitova. And they, they put. Holy. They put, and they put Bencic. You know what, kids? They, don't they, they bet. <laughs> <laughs> this is a over stupid, stupid, stupid racket. <laughs> yes, yeah, so let's go with. Ooh, it's the tennis racket. Good plug. Hey, oh. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So, oh, is someone's offering 100 to 1. Wait, 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 wait. This bookmaker is offering the same. Wait, nope. The same odds are basically for Stoser, who is like a past finalist in the good clay quarter. And Tomljanovic? What? What? Is that, an Aussie, is that an Aussie bookmaker? <laughs> it's Betfair. And then Stoser also has the same odds as Panetta, who is like a <laughs> poor Stoser. <laughs> Sam. What is that? Uh, you know what? That fair screw you. That's disrespectful. That is disrespectful. That's just the market. That fair is just the market talking. But so. what is? Don't start me on the market. But um, <laughs> what are the odds on Kazakina? Like fourteen to one. Oh my gosh! I, no, I, they're way. <laughs> <laughs> Kazakina is not even on this list. How dare you? How you know who is? Dare on, you? you know who is on this list? Scrolling, 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 scrolling. Teliana Pereira, <laughs> 2,500 to one. Okay, seriously, guys, don't bet. I'm sorry. I, I understand that people do it in Europe and it's like a cultural thing in, in Australia and like wherever. We don't do it in the States, so we have a completely different view of it. Just don't. Why? Keep your money. Go buy a hamburger. It's tasty. Speaking of hamburgers, you know that Djokovic would not eat a hamburger because it's not gluten-free. I guess you eat without the bun, but then it becomes like what, like a Salisbury steak or something no, different? No, it's protein style. You can get one at In-N-Out. Okay, fair. You With like a, a lettuce wrap? Yeah, double-double protein style lettuce wrap. Okay. Well, Novak Djokovic, whatever he's eating, is not – is dispensing – well, not that many breakthrough products, I'm going to say it, but he is just winning a lot. He's won 24 straight sets after bizarrely still such a – I still don't understand how he lost the first set. I, I guess Fertangelo played well, but he lost the first set of Indian Wells to Bjorn Fertangelo. They won his next 24. He wins Miami. He beats Kenny Shakori in the final – after Nisha Corey beat Nick Kyrgios in the semi uh, in what was sort of the breakout store on the men's side of Miami, I think. Djokovic wins, and as we said with Azarenka and all the other results, it's a bit rinse-repeat, but I think with Djokovic, 
these clothes have been in the wash for a very, very long time. These Uniqlo things that he's getting in all these trophy pictures. Did we learn anything new about Djokovic in Miami? Is it possible to learn anything new about Djokovic in Miami? Or is it all Courtney just this track on repeat? Hmm. Did we learn anything new about Djokovic? I'm genuinely thinking. Hold on. Who, by the way, is also the French Open favorite for the men. Yadar. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I don't think that we learned anything new from Novak. I mean, I, he's like really good at tennis. Mm, really? Like, really good. Super, super good. And I kind of knew that going into Miami. And I kind of know that now. So, I mean, absolutely impeccable run from, from Novak Djokovic to win Miami. Also to complete uh, the Indian Wells Miami double, uh, sunshine double, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, just kind of took care of business. Am I wrong? Was he, ch- did he drop a set somewhere along the way? I, I can't remember. In Miami, no. Yeah, okay. So kind of streak through. And, and, and again, I mean, I thought, the, I thought he was very good in the final. Um, but there were definitely matches that I recall watching that were, you know, he, he just has an incredible ability to like, just play good enough a lot yeah, of times. A- and, and that's an incredible talent in and of itself there's a bit of sometimes and i guess we definitely saw this i guess um i guess the sangha match in india was what i'm thinking of a bit which i think was six and six there's a Djokovic has an ability and i think it's not an ability or i guess that was uh yeah there's an as an ability to play down to his competition sometimes but in this way where it's still so comfortable and i guess this was sort of hammered home to me when i was at um a sports bar with a fr- couple friends of mine we were watching a f- hockey game a flyers cap scan that was on and at the same time on the tv next to it which i was shocked by that the tennis was on that sports bar but it was cool um it was on espn <laughs> too so i guess they just had that on instinctively was djokovic burdich which is the quarterfinal in miami Yeesh. and and i was like and they were like oh okay it's so like number one versus number seven this is this could be okay right and i was like no <laughs> no <laughs> it's gonna be like two and two um and they're like really but it's like number seven and i was like trust me on this it's not it's not gonna be close and the match started and it was three and three yeah so i was close well not the funny wrong. thing about that match is yeah. that it was three and three and burdick was close yeah it was like not close yeah. but like he had opportunities it wasn't as the scoreline was a little bit deceptive in terms of of that match but it was interesting because a a journalist asked uh svetlana kuznetsova uh how do you beat Djokovic? Which I think is like a hilarious combination of question and player. <laughs> and she and she kind of keyed into to the mental aspect of it that these guys know that they have to go, they have to redline like mega redline, like Fast and the Furious style, Tokyo Drift, and while at the same time knowing not only do I have to redline and hit all the lines and play on the edge, but knowing that Novak doesn't. Like he doesn't even have to come close, and that's what's so. That's what I think is so scary or so frustrating about him. Like he says, that he can really sort of mail it in and be comfortable. And when he doesn't, when he actually like seems like he puts his foot on the gas and doesn't coast, you just get mowed over so brutally. Yeah. Like what happened to Nadal in the Doha final? What happened to Roger for the first two sets? I guess of their Australian Open semi for joke for against Murray in parts of that Australian Open match, but not entirely. Um, Djokovic is just so much better than everybody else. And I guess saying this in this sort of sports bar, you know, should I be interested in this match context? Like, we said this before, Djokovic and the dominance conversation. But I think as we wrap up this quarter, which was very much beat goes on for Djokovic. And I'm pissed, actually, that he had that match with the eye thing in Dubai. Totally. That screwed up his stats because he deserves to be undefeated this year. 
Um, and so, and just tennis deserves for him to be undefeated this year. And it'd be such a good story for him to have his streak going again. And I guess you can, we can start doing the streak with asterisks, but he did like, he was clearly losing in that match. So it's not the easiest one to make an argument for. Um, is this getting pointless with Djokovic? I mean, I, the, the comparison that I'll introduce right away with this is the one I tuned into part of the, uh, women's March Madness basketball. And UConn was playing against Mississippi State, who was like a five seed or a four seed. So like pretty good. And they like come in second place in this SEC. And they were losing 34 to four. <laughs> and I was like, what? 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 Like, it doesn't seem like there's a point to playing the games when UNC, uh, sorry, UConn wound up winning the title game by 31 in the end. And just title games are never that lopsided are usually never that lopsided when it's the theoretically two best teams. And there's such a gap. And with Djokovic, I think the gap is totally the same. Um, so I think that, I don't know, I think when the when the, if the results are this certain, you almost have to watch in terms of style points. And I guess that's subjective, but I don't know that Djokovic is necessarily racking up the style points to keep, at least for me at this point, his domination always, I don't know if it stops being must-see TV at some point. I mean, what I'm asking. here's the thing. I... Again, I hate to like, I know that I constantly like re-reference the fact that I've said these things on podcasts, but I don't think that my position on dominance has changed. And it's, right. a, it's a topic that has come up on this podcast before many, many times. I don't... It's had to with what we've been handed with him, especially. No, not just with him. This We've had this conversation. Serena. No, even back then, we talked about it conceptually with Roger, with any player that is dominant. I just don't like dominance. I don't like... Dom- the French, yeah. yeah. I don't like dominant teams unless they're my team. Fair. Right? Like, I am I was a... Hey, Warriors. Yeah. Hey, Warriors. Amazing. I obviously grew up watching the Niners in the 80s, team of the decade. Uh, the Oakland A's, back when they used to win, you know, title after title. Phenomenal. Bash brother years. Um, I like it when it's my guy or my girl or my team. I don't like it. I mean, hell, I watch the U.S. Women's National Team. We never lose. So, like... Yeah, you tune into these friendlies against, like, Trinidad and Tobago, and I'm like, why are you watching <laughs> Right. But it's my team, so it's fine. I think, and, yeah. and so I think that like the issue with the whole dominance parody conversation, obviously people saw me go on a bit of a Twitter rant about this, but it was more about gender than anything else. But um, is that my argument is that parody sells for the casual fan. Well, you know what? I can see it both ways, but I'm going to go ahead and hold on to my argument before I totally eviscerate it again. Okay. Um, but... Because to me, like last, like for example, I'm not a really big basketball fan. It is my least favorite of the big American Four. sports. Yeah. yeah, like I will. I mean, even five. Like I'll watch. I'll. I mean, normally I'd rather watch a NASCAR race than watch a basketball game. I, is NASCAR is that fifth? I think it's five. I've heard. I heard someone say Big Five. And this is obviously a sidebar that no one outside these states cares about. But I heard someone say Big Five, and I re- realized later they were referring to MLS, and I was like, eh. Oh no, 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 no. I literally know no one who watches MLS, and I yeah. know lots of you know soccer fans. I just don't. But like last night, we had the NCAA title game, one of the greatest sporting games, matches, whatever I've ever seen. Definitely best finishes ever, for sure. Yeah, well, I just think it was an amazing game from front to back. Um, but between Villanova and and the University of North Carolina, and I just in that situation, parody is amazing. Like if I, but I don't watch women's basketball not because it's women's basketball, because it's basketball. And so to me, even though it's UConn, it's a great story. I get it. Yay, lady, you know, yay, women. UConn, 
I get that the stats are phenomenal, but no, I I was not at the bar tonight watching the UConn women's team beat up on Syracuse. I was watching tennis TV on my phone, watching Angelique Kerber maybe almost lose to Lara Arua-Burena in the first round of Charleston. You know, that's that. Yeah, no, I, I completely get that. And I don't think it's necessarily even about with UConn. It, I mean, I guess it is about the certainty. And also, UConn women are just such a bizarre outlier. And do we need to so... give context to UConn, by the way? We okay, do have a lot of international I, listeners. I will so, explain okay. what basketball is. No, not basketball. basketball. I'm saying UConn. Basketball is a sport that's much better than netball, first of all. <laughs> it's like netball, but not terrible. I'm, I'm uh, high-fiving you. Thank you. It's like thank netball, you. but not sexist. Yet still right. marginally sexist, but not because of the actual really. rules of the game. No. Yeah. So the women, women's college basketball is especially for the women because the WNBA really has not taken off as a pro league but the women's game still gets good coverage it gets on ESPN all through the tournament which is big for them it's a pretty big spotlight for women's sports one of the biggest sort of continuous ones that a domestic US sports gets I think it's the round. second behind uh, soccer women's soccer in terms of team sports in the US or yeah okay that could in be in terms of like co- like attention and coverage and legitimacy it might be ahead at times honestly and they're pretty level yeah maybe depending on, depending on how you measure i, I wouldn't uh, argue that yeah i think women's basketball gets better tv coverage on like a weekend week out basis that's true yes but there's more games women's, like right. the u.s women's national team is only going to play like on average For sure. it, a couple it does of games. much better than the nwsl let's say which is the women's soccer league yeah but um, that's pro league but continue anyway so uh, the women's and Gino Oriama is the coach of UConn, which is more or less dominated off and on and dominated like insanely. They have now won, I believe, 75 straight games, 74, 75 straight games. And like I, I'm going to ballpark these stats. I don't have them in front of me. I've just heard pieces of them. They basically not lost, not won any of these games by fewer than 10 points. And that just means it wasn't a close game. And so they're winning. And it's never close. And they're getting they have this massive, massive recruit, recruiting advantage because all the best recruits, all the best high school players want to go play for UConn, which is a thing you don't get necessarily in pro sports with salary caps or individual sports and draft like, positions. Right. And yeah, and draft, I mean, there's nothing there's yeah. nothing equalizing the field. And so the best just keeps getting better. I don't know if I was I would like to think that if I was a great basketball player, I wouldn't want to go to UConn. I feel like it would be no, kind of no fun. Maybe it's fun to win all the time, but I don't know. It's, it's, whatever, whatever it is, whatever it is at this point, it's gotten to a point, and some people say this criticism is sexist, but I, I don't think it really is when you're looking at just how slanted the numbers are and how uncompetitive these games are that it's gone too far. And with Djokovic, to bring it back to tennis, I'm not sure that I think we're approaching that. I mean, I Djokovic. I think so. I just Djokovic, agree Djokovic, with I, that, I, but... I think we're. I don't think we're there because Djokovic still has weaknesses, namely the French Open. <sighs> and I guess if you want to say Cincinnati, too. But he has things he hasn't done yet. You know, he's not right in those situations. You will tune in. Perfect. Correct. Right. You will so tune Djokovic, in to see if he can do it. Djokovic still has six slams to go. I mean, three slams to go to catch Rafa, six slams to go to catch Federer, and seven to pass him to be the all-time record holder. Um, he's just recently gotten ahead of those two guys in their head-to-head records all-time. Um, hasn't won the French yet. Hasn't won Cincinnati, which is a weird one. Um, hasn't won the Olympics. So, I mean, he has boxes left to check that I think will make those moments exciting, no matter whether or not he's a heavy favorite going into it or not. Because he was a heavy favorite, remember, going into the Rinka final. We thought that was a done deal uh, before that match started. So I guess I guess he's still there. But like I said, like sitting down at this bar with Djokovic Burdic about to start and seeing their head-to-head was 22-2. to It's I'm not sure what there's, there's a point to what I'm saying here, but I'm just saying that well, it's not the most... I don't think it's the easiest time to... 
say this is going to be because sports sports is about uncertainty i think and yeah i Djokovic is very certain yes and and that is uh stepping away from making it personal about Djokovic. that is my overarching uh disdain for dominance which is that if it's a done deal what's the point and and i am a person who i've said this before that i will watch you know two you know kids teams playing soccer at the park and if i walk up to somebody oh what's the score oh it's 2-2 i will stand there and watch the whole thing i just like watching people compete yeah you know and and um and in order to do that i need to know that the result is in balance that it, that it's not for sure one way or the other uh right. setting aside the caveat of but it's if it's my guy if it's Steph Curry and he's throwing down bombs and the Warriors are winning by 40 I will absolutely watch that from front to back like I don't and even and even and even with Steph Curry I think he gets to a point of Steph Curry just wins by such style points yeah that I'm not sure I don't know if it's, obje- it's definitely subjective but I'm not sure that Djokovic has and I think this is maybe something I don't I just I'm not sure that people are as wowed, you don't see Djokovic gifts popping up with the frequency of Steph Curry gifts or whatever. Yeah, but um, yes, that, I, I don't argue with that from an objective like. And he also doesn't have a clear nemesis in the way right now. I mean, that's the thing that Federer had in his dominance, which I think was interesting. Federer never had complete separation from the pack in the way that Djokovic seems to now, because Federer pretty quickly had Nadal. I mean, there was not a long time in tennis. It wasn't, I guess, Federer really started being dominant in 04. And Nadal was very much on the scene in 06. So there wasn't a time when Federer was the favorite everywhere in the way that Djokovic what? is now. I don't know if I agree with that take on history. Okay, like okay. Nadal arrives. And yes, Nadal was winning on clay. But like Federer still remained pretty dominant outside of that. And No, but, but outside of that, I'm saying that there was still a mountain left for him to climb. And I guess Djokovic hasn't completely planted its flag atop Roland Garros Mountain, but I don't know. It seems no, there I, seem to be fewer obstacles than Federer. I don't. I, I disagree with that. I, I, I think okay. that that you know, because when we look at the Novak Djokovic dominance era, what's the time span we're looking at? Define it. I think we're looking because it's shorter than what was what Roger was doing. The really dominance era, I guess, is twenty. Well, it goes, it's patchy. But it was definitely 2011 and then probably no, 2014 on. Uh, I would say 2014 on. 2011, I wouldn't count necessarily. Um, I think that there was far much, there was way more parity within the four from 11 to 14, from 2011 to 14. Oh, great. No, right? I agree. Okay, so th- yeah. that's not an era of dominance. If there's parity, no, you, no. you can't have dominance and parity at the same time. It was one spectacular year of dominance. Yes, but that's not, yeah. But like era, 2014 sure. to now, I think is definitely the Novak era. So you're talking two years. I don't think that that's any different uh, or greater than or worse than what Roger did back then. No, I'm just saying, I guess, and I was saying Roger, I meant to say 05, I guess is when Nadal first won the French Open, um, not 06, that Roger had someone standing in his way who was like a specific gatekeeper in Nadal on clay that I'm not sure Djokovic has. Maybe Ravrinka, but he's so intermittent. I, I, I just don't I, I don't see anybody stepping up. And that's, I guess, part of to go to the rest of the field like we talked about with the the women in terms of Serena and other top tenors having issues that have allowed for more parity um, and players like Azarenka and Kerber to be opportunistic. The men's are very much this way as well right now, too. I mean, Murray hasn't did not have a good sunshine double at all. Uh, Federer pulled out of it of Miami with his injury, hasn't didn't play any of it. 
Uh, Rafa has had a shaky year. Obviously, Nisha Corey just didn't look close in that final, really, after steadily making that final. And by the way, that Nisha Corey Malfis quarterfinal was amazing. Amazing. Make sure we mention that. That was probably the match of the year. I was really hoping that Kyrgios would make the final because we haven't seen Kyrgios Djokovic yet, and I thought that would be cool. And Kyrgios is someone with the upside and X factor to, I think, make things interesting in a way that I didn't think Nisha Corey could. But right now, I think we're seeing Djokovic at his best at a time when few other guys can say they're at their best. And so a lot of things are conspiring together to make this his moment. Yeah, I mean, I guess that there's a knock there. I mean, which obviously isn't Novak's fault, but like no, the, fact that, the fact that none like, of this is Novak's fault. None of it. Any, He's anything, doing... I'm, anything I'm saying about yeah, anything about exactly. being, you know, underwhelmed by it, this is all the field who is falling short here, not Djokovic. Right. Djokovic is doing everything he can and more, and the field is falling and he's just lapping them and that's he is completely their fault for not being fast enough yeah, yeah no that's right i mean it's i mean the the visual that i've had in my that i have in my head is kind of like the usain bolt situation but if you could imagine usain bolt doing that over the, like 800 meters where like okay it looked like it was even ish in the first like five steps that everybody took and then all of a sudden out of nowhere the gap like exponentially expanded yeah um so I mean I think that that yes okay I understand the style points situation and I understand that like people will Novak fans will take great umbrage to this idea of like he doesn't play as pretty tennis as 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 Roger and you know all these sorts of things I mean when I watch Novak play I marvel at just how good he is like just how complete he is Oh right as it's, opposed it's... to you're like you're less inclined to see gifts of Novak shots than you know, back in his prime Roger shots. His his prime, I think, is better than Roger's prime. I mean, I think he's, it's more close Ooh, to perfect tennis. Ooh, hot, hot take! Uninten- unintentional hot take. In that <laughs> you, like, he, wandered into a, a flaming hot take. <laughs> I get I mean, we can, well, obviously, we'll, we can do some big picture show about no, that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm curious to hear your rationale on well, this one. Well, just in that Federer's was about... I, I feel like Djokovic is more... When I watch Djokovic, I watch it more from the perspective of the opponent and just think of him as like this unbeatable video game level, you know, and I've played plenty of video of video game tennis against like AIs that are set to maximum level. And he just like, doesn't break down. You know, he's always there getting back one more ball and putting it back with interest and just being annoying. <laughs> in yeah. this way, that's like, why can't I get it past him? This is, this is rough. And it, it just seems like he's a, a tougher equation to solve. Whereas Federer would one more, and uh, not that Djokovic is passive in any way, but Federer was a more attacking guy, um, stepping more into the court, making more highlight reel shots. And also and more because, errors. And, and right, and right because, because of that, more errors, more things could go wrong. And Federer was yeah. doing things that looked to be a higher degree of difficulty, even if he made him look easy. Whereas Djokovic is just like, no, it's it's more more like a ball machine kind of thing, or more like a wall, whatever inanimate object you want to call him. And it's just it's just tough. And so it's more complete. It's more it's it's less it's less balletic and less you know elegant definitely than what Federer did. And I don't think anyone would argue that it isn't, but it's also more efficient and more sound and just looks so 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 solid. He had in a way that Federer didn't. Not that Federer. I'm not knocking to peak Federer, you guys either. But I think yeah, you are. To. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I I I I buy your argument. I, I it is what I've said before. Um, it's like he hacked tennis. He has the cheat codes. Novak contra coded tennis. Um, for those of you who are old enough to understand that reference, and I am not really. You don't know contra code? 
No, what is Contra Code? Oh my god. Really? This is like a pop culture thing. Explain so, this to me. I have no idea. Back with the original Nintendo system, there was a game called Contra. Uh, well, I call it Contra Code. Technically, it's Konami Code. But there was a code before you played Contra. If you hit it, then... Oh, the A, B... Yeah, up, up, up down, 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 left, right, left, right. A, start. A, yeah, exactly. And it okay. gave you... I can't remember how many lives. It wasn't unlimited, but it was enough to get through the entire game effectively and not have to yeah, um, start from the beginning. Um, so, yeah, it's it's all of those references of he's, you know, he has a, he's Konami code. He's Bo Jackson in Tech Mobile, who was an unstoppable player if you chose to play... If you were the Raiders and you just wanted to score touchdowns all the time he just called running plays for Bo Jackson and nobody could tackle him um yeah he's all of those sorts of things and and it's a marvel to watch intellectually now whether or not he has I don't know made that his game style not him as a personality but that his whether his game style has made an emotional connection to people is a completely different thing. Like I right. watch Steph Curry and I think that what he does is amazing and it's so fun. And I just watch, the, I sit there and I laugh as he drains threes from, you know, mid court. I didn't have that connection to Reggie Miller. Now, obviously they are like, you know, the great shooters, Paul Pierce or, you know, all those great like NBA shooters. My, my, Michael Jordan. Even. Jordan. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, yeah. Cause I, again, didn't like dominance. So I was like, Oh, this is so boring. <laughs> now that the Warriors are chasing that bulls record. Amazing. So, yeah, let's not pretend this is all objective and, and verifiable via um, oh. uh, sabermetrics and whatnot. But, uh, but yeah, Novak, very good at tennis. All this is to say, no, we did not learn anything new. <laughs> <laughs> and that, with that, we can wrap up this episode. I guess very briefly to go just peek ahead to the French and the Claysies in general. Djokovic is my French Open favorite. Is he yours? Yes. There we go. Oh, that's the first time you've ever said that. You always pick Nadal. So yeah, you're right. Oh my god, yeah. I just wandered into a hot take. Yeah, you did. I mean, like it's a hot take based on my own like metrics. I'm sure that everybody else thinks that's not a hot take, but he's an odds-on favorite to win the tournament right now. It's not even close right. odds-wise. It's just not. So it's not even close. But we are close to finishing this show, so we will say thank you very much for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along, along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. If you have a question for an upcoming show, send it to us at nochallengesremaining at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and whatever other podcasting app you use. We'll get new episodes delivered automatically that way, and it's pretty cool. Leave us reviews on iTunes as well. Subscribe there. All those things help us out quite a bit. The executive producers for No Challenges Remaining are Pancho Resendez of tennisballs.com and Tal Woolley. Courtney, you got any ranty feelings i feel like this is an episode high on feelings already all mostly tennis-ish but any other things brewing in your non-charleston food filled mind and soul <laughs> that was the weirdest cadence ever um yeah no i have a rant it's a rave rant it's a it's a rave it, yeah it's a rant rave Okay. Which is perfect for this segment. It's what we do. <laughs> this is what we do. I finally finished the second season of Serial. And here's the thing. Because I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was... I, I liked it more than se- season one of Serial. Which, wow. hot take. That's the hottest take so far. Hottest take so far. And that is where wherein it leads to my rant. Which is that, like, I don't understand, like, people who, like, didn't really... 
attach themselves to season two. Now, I understand season one, obviously, with the Adnan thing, and it involved murder um, and uh, and girlfriends and high schools and, you know, uh, race issues. And it took place in Baltimore, all these sorts of things. I get it. Like, it was salacious and it was, you know, it was like a soap opera. And that was very, very interesting and super duper compelling. And you're talking about guilt and innocence of a single man and who you listen to a lot and things like that. So I understand why everybody loved season one and season two, especially in the first few first few episodes, seems very dry compared to season one. I mean, we're talking about, for those of you who, who haven't listened, season two of Serial focuses on Bo Bergdahl, who was an American uh, soldier in the army who walked off base while positioned while uh, stationed in Afghanistan, and the question was whether or not he was a deserter or whether or not he had effectively been captured. And well, I mean, he was effectively captured and yeah. held for five years by the Taliban and uh, in Pakistan. And um, so that's ostensibly that sounds way more boring than Adnan Syed and him and you know whatever. But and the, did he do it of Adnan? Right, exactly. Yeah. There was a very simple question of did he do it? Whereas like the Bergdahl situation, the amount of reporting, like I feel like season two of Serial was like the spotlight of podcasts, like the movie spotlight. In That's so, high praise. Yeah. Insofar as it kind of, I just kind of listened to it. I was like, God, this is some journalism that's happening right now. Like in terms of getting you know, key members of the Department of Defense and the branches of the military and soldiers that were on the ground to tell their experiences and to be open about what they thought about it. And what ended up happening over the course of the season is that what started as a very small, not small, but the story of Bo Bergdahl became this entire look at the geopolitical landscape and how military works, how it happens, how the war on terror works, what it's like to be on the ground, um, uh, what it's like to be in the military, the code, all these sorts of things. And it just was this sprawling universe. And somehow, somehow, St. Sarah Koenig (laughs) was able to make sense of it all and to weave it together, obviously, with the serial team, to where it was incredibly coherent um, and interesting and compelling. And the argument that I will make for Serial Season 2 as opposed to Serial Season 1, and what was amazing is that, because I don't want to put them against each other because it shouldn't be an either or. They're both fantastic. But Season 1 was small and Season 2 was big, like in terms of the issues that we're talking about. And I think that that was such a smart decision by... The, the serial team to choose the Berg doll because you remember like you know a year ago everybody's like what case could they possibly choose next like what's serial gonna do and what they really did is they they flipped the needle the other way and they they tackled this massive case that um and this massive topic that has incredible consequences like right. and bigger consequences than quote-unquote just Adnan Syed's life you know what I mean I, and I don't want to obviously minimize Adnan's situation and whatever. But we're talking about like this kind of broader theme. And I just think that that Sarah Koenig did a fantastic job. I think that her narration, the writing in season two, because she has to do a lot of talking, um, was crisp and it was clean and it was clear and it was compelling. And it was what they pulled off in season two to me was so, so hard. The degree of difficulty was, was just off the charts and they absolutely nailed it. And 
I'm just like super stoked for them. Like not even just like as a consumer of entertainment, just being like, oh my God, like well done you. I just want to give you a high five because that was, that was fucking hard, dude. And you did it. So props to Serial season two. Please listen to it. Maybe Ben and I will do a spoiler type mm-hmm. discussion of it in a few weeks. I also finished, I finished it on the drive down to Charleston. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah. There you go. That That's my, that's my rant rave. Definitely listen to it. And if you think that it's kind of boring in the first like three or four episodes, like stick with it because I, I think that especially, you know, in the last like four episodes or so, like it really expands and uh, yeah, they just did a fantastic job. I think the, I think the, my favorite, and we can go in this more, but I think my favorite episode is the second to last one. Yes. It's great. And I was, and I, I don't know when you, when you, I'll ask, we can go more into this in a separate serial show, but did you realize um, when you started episode 11 that it was the last one? Cause I did not. I did not. I had not heard that nope. until she was like midway through like, oh, this is our uh, yeah. last episode. And I was like, what? Huh? Exactly. Yeah, no, so. I was like downloading and I'm like, where's the next one? Like, you know, cause I was like downloading everything so I could listen to on the plane from, um, from Miami to here. Uh, and I was like, oh, I'll have like, you know, an hour. Well, it only came out, it only came out this past week or so. Yeah, I know. But like, the, but like I downloaded that and I didn't look at the, cause I didn't re- I haven't been listening contemporaneously. I've been binge listening in chunks. So it just didn't even occur to me that it was, yeah, that it wasn't, that there wasn't another one. Okay. I thought that I was like catching up by downloading a bunch of episodes that had already passed and then it was like done. But yeah, so. Things have to end. Um, my rant will be very different. It's decidedly a rant and not a rave. It's that people should stop making up things on the internet <laughs> in the tennis world. Uh. This is more tennis specific rant than usual, but just don't do it because it makes everybody's lives harder. And even if you think that you are an inconsequential tweeter and or message board poster or whatever, that people see your things and can take them seriously. And sarcasm is a language not universally understood by the internet or wherever um and just it makes people's lives harder and that like as a reporter we have to like track i've had to track down the stupidest leads from things that have emerged on various social media stuff and uh it's not fine there was one specific one i remember that was about like someone made up something on like an espn message board once about how serena williams had called into like a memphis morning talk show on like espn radio and I talked about while she was in the hospital, like Maria Sharapova came to visit her. Mm. And, it, and it started making the rounds like one morning. I was like, what? And then I was like trying to track down this like Memphis station. It's, it's just it's rabbit holes that I just don't appreciate having to run through because I'm bad enough at getting in, you know, places that are actually real. Yeah. On that front, I think people understand that. I'm sure Courtney understands the illusion I'm making here topic wise. Yeah. Um, yep. So that was a thing. I don't, I don't even want to talk about it too much. because I feel awful assuming that i guess every indication this was completely baseless so yeah um, yeah so please do not do that be responsible people on the internet obviously no one's perfect but do your best to be not awful because words have consequences and these are real people in the world of tennis even if they might seem like uh distorted you know tv characters from afar so that's it just internet responsibly internet with a lowercase i by the way which i'm really excited about I don't know if you got this, saw this, Courtney, that AP changed their style guide. No. To make, to make lower, internet with a lowercase i now. Brian I like Phillips that. Delighted about it. Yeah, yeah. It used to be capital I, which I never understood. As though it was like a it's foreign. Not a, it's, it's not, not a, a proper yeah, noun. No. It's not a brand name. You don't, no, you don't so. uh, capitalize books. Right. You don't capitalize magazines, songs, right. albums. Yeah. Like so. the word. But yeah. 
So the style guy was like really weirdly like dated and partially just it was like internet is not interchangeable with World Wide Web and all these other different things that it had in there. It was very like '90s style Aww. coming to grips with what this new thing is. So it was cute, but lowercase internet guys be cool because internet is generally pretty cool. And we will leave you with that on the internet or wherever internet fueled device you are listening to us from. Uh, thank you guys. Once again, we will, I'll do probably a show, a more Charleston centric show with some local characters here um, in some part for the next show. And Courtney will be back presumably, I hope uh, next time as well. And we will see you guys as well for episode 150, which will be our sesquicentennial. My favorite words. Hmm. 150. Fun. <laughs> Bye guys. Bye bye. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. Just because we use cheats doesn't mean we're not smart. I don't see what anyone can see in anyone else. But you. <laughs> 